The passage of Scripture for the sermon this evening is in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is the Word of God. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affliction, in any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Please be seated. Well, it's a blessing to be with you here this evening for many reasons. It's always a blessing to join together with brothers and sisters, not only in the same denomination, but simply in Christ. It's a, it's a blessing to be with you this time of year where there's, there's much joy um, because of the Advent, because we dwell on the Incarnation and all that it means for us. So I've mentioned this before, and I've been down here, but it's always a blessing for my wife and I who met in Tucson. So without your fine city, my family would not exist. Now, my eldest son, who's now taking care of our youngest son, was born here. We were pointing that out to him as he was driving. Um, so it's always a blessing to be down here with you. And uh, part of the blessing of this season is, of course, to dwell on Jesus Christ, but that's also often a challenge for us, isn't it? I, I would surely not be the first person to remark that the Christmas season, the Advent season, can, can be a challenge. It can be a challenge for a lot of reasons. For a lot of people, the loss of family members means it can be a season of sadness or, or loneliness. We, we know perhaps the biggest challenge for us as Christians is to say, stay centered on the joy of the incarnation while we are steeped in the brine of American consumerism. Um, the Christmas season for most of America is the season of Christmas stuff rather than the season of the Christmas Lord. And there's lots of different ways you can measure this. The average American individual last year spent $300 on Christmas gifts. I'm not saying Christmas gifts are wrong. Uh, the average family spent $1,000 on Christmas gifts last year. Uh, that's equivalent to one week's salary for the average family. Last year, Americans spent $859 billion buying Christmas stuff. And according to every statistic, it will almost definitely cross a trillion American dollars this year on Christmas stuff. So, being that we are in this culture, we're called to be in this world, we're called to seek the good of the city in which God has placed us, how do we navigate, right? We, we can't simply throw these things off. We don't want to completely throw off the season or our families or the joy of giving gifts, but we also want to stay centered on Christ. And that idea of, of really being centered 
on the incarnation is, is at the center of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And so really lovingly, it's, it's also kind of a, church to, a letter to every church during Christmas. If you're familiar with the book of Philippians, Paul is almost certainly in jail. He's almost certainly near the end of his life. He is suffering. He's writing to a church that's had an abundance of faith in Christ, but a church that also needs to stay centered around the real truth of the incarnation. They need to stay centered in that during a time of controversy. There are people who are fighting against Paul, who are trying to put him to shame, to tear down his ministry. And so perhaps they're not dealing with our consumerism, but both of us are placed with this conflict between staying centered on Christ and the demands of the world around us. And right here at the center of this book is this famous passage. It's often called the Canonic Hymn, this reflection on the incarnation. And what Paul says, that the center of this is humility. So we only have two points tonight. We're going to look at the humble hymn. You could also say we're going to look at the humble Christ, of course, that's the center. And then after looking at the humble Christ, we're going to look at the humble life. So we're going to skip ahead in this passage, even though we're doing the whole pericope. We're going to go down to verse 5. And we say it's a hymn. There's a lot of reasons why theologians, commentators will point out a hymn, and I tend to agree, and I won't go into all of the reasons. But one of the more interesting facets is that there seems to be three couplets inside this passage that have a lot of things in the Greek that connects them, but more specifically, they have this poetic progress through each couplet. The first one is verses 5 and 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... This is usually where the hymn starts. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with a thing to be grasped. And here's the second one. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then here's the third couple. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, this being a hymn is not to settle some kind of theological debate about songs, or it's often even find itself at a center of different controversies about Christ and his incarnation. And those are all important, but for the form of a sermon, I think what we ought to look at the scriptures and say is, what does Jesus want me to know from this text? And I say that with confidence because I learned that from Pastor Chris Chelpka. And if he's wrong, then we're wrong together. So what does Jesus want us to hear? And although this this passage has amazing Christological implications, it should be the center of any seminary class on Christology. And although it has absolute implications for life in the church, when Paul is writing this to the Philippians, his overriding concern is clearly that they would understand the humility of Christ in the Incarnation. And so first we see that humility is the cause of the incarnation. Why did God become incarnate? Why did the Son take on flesh? And it says in verse 6, because he did not count equality with with God a thing to be grasped. So we can rightly say that humility, which is to say humble love, was the cause of the incarnation. We know that God desired to make a people for himself. That's been the plan Since the very beginning, when he put us in the garden to have a people for himself, a kingdom of priests unto God, but now having fallen away from us, if God desires to have that people, he must win them back to himself. 
And he must do it through humility. Humility is the cause. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And the force of that word is clearly something to grasp onto, something to hold onto. And really, Paul is setting up, I believe, we call a dichotomy, a choice. Not that God was divided against himself, but a choice that the Trinity made in themselves. Would the Son of God choose to take on this humble form and all of the suffering and misery and difficulty that comes with it, or would he choose to grasp onto, to stay with and only with, the Godhead? That's awful helpful when we talk about the Incarnation, that we understand that God doesn't change. We know that can be tricky theological purpose, but humility and understanding the cause of humility helps us understand that. In humility, God is bringing something to himself not changing who he fundamentally was. Because, and this is mind-blowing, God has always been humble. Now, we might think that sounds odd. He's the great God of the universe. He desires all glory and praise. Of course he does. It's right to give thanks to the Lord. It's right to praise his name. Every call to worship we read tends to start that way. But humility, humility, Paul describes here in this passage is what? Look not only to your interests, but look at someone else's above you. And this is where the doctrine of the Trinity is necessary to understand God's humble love and his incarnation. Because we confess a God that is three persons. And so Sinclair Ferguson in his excellent book, Devoted to God, says we need to find the love and holiness of God in a way that doesn't just relate to us as humans. Christmas is the season where we think about God in relation to us, but if we're going to say that God is loving, if he's holy, how can we say that before the foundation of the world? And Sinclair Ferguson says the way we define his holiness before there's anything for him to be separate from is that it's his love. The perfect outward-facing love that each person in the Trinity has for each other is the picture of pre-creation holiness and therefore humility. Because before the foundation of the world, before creation, before incarnation, the Father loved the Son. The Father loved the Spirit. The Son loved the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit loved the Father and the Son. And that love was glorious. It was devoted to each other completely and fully. So we can say, yes, God is humble, and that humility is the cause, that humble love. But then he goes on to say in the next couplet, He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human, humbled human form, I could say being found in humbled form, he humaned himself. That wouldn't be quite correct. But the point of being a human is to assume a level of humility. This is what theologians will call the creator-creation distinction. The minute the creator of life takes onto himself a human form, we have that doctrine which can only be rightly referred to as the humiliation of Christ. And our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters, there's many in that tradition who who do believe in Jesus, if you ever get to to know them, it's fascinating how much the incarnation forms the center of their theology. Now, I'm not suggesting we go to the Eastern Orthodox Church for theology. But there is a deep benefit to meditating on the overwhelming humility displayed and humiliation displayed in this passage. And it's worth sincerely taking a time and allowing your mind to grasp the implications that the God who holds 
The earth together, Hebrews says, by his word of power, now walks on it and feels it beneath his human feet. The God who binds hydrogen and oxygen together holds those molecules so that water is wet. From the smallest stream carving a path through the forest to the mightiest oceans crashing against, crashing against cliffs, the God who made that is now thirsty. The God who is the source of all energy in this universe, who binds every molecule together, where all new life springs from, finds himself knocked out and, and tired. So that's why being in human form is being in humble form for him. But not only was that hum humble love that he not had not only for the members of the Trinity, but now he has for his people, not only is that the cause, but this hymn says that humility is also the work, that it has to be a humble work to save his people. He had to be humbled in being obedient to the point of death. And so if God is not humble in his cause and his love and his work, then we can't even be saved. One of the most important works in the history of the church was written by Anselm around the turn of the last century, two centuries ago to be clear. And its Latin title is Cur Deus Homo, which is Why the God-Man. And it's a really excellent treatise on why God had to become a man. But at the center of it, there's this wonderful thought that Anselm shares. And Anselm says, God had to humble himself to become a man because he loved us. And it was, in fact, his love that necessitated this humility. So humility is the cause. It's the reason why. Humility is the work. It's the utility. It's what saves us. And then we see in this final couplet, humility is what God crowns in the incarnation. Taking on, becoming thirsty, even though he made water, becoming hungry, even though he made life, this humility is what saves us. It's also what God crowns. In verse 9, therefore, this final triumphant couplet, therefore, because of his humble love, because of his humble incarnation, because of his humble salvation, for those things, verse 9 says, God exalted him. Because of his humility, God exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that's above every name. Now that could be really hard. <laughs> for us as humans, to combine the exaltation of Christ, the glorious king we read in Revelations, who comes down and his eyes are like fire, and his fury treads the winepress of the wrath of the Lord God Almighty. And Philippians says, that's because he was humble. It's because he was humble that he treads the fury of the winepress of the wrath of the Almighty God. It's because he was humble, the nations bend their knee to him and adore him as a powerful king. Those things, Philippians says, are intricately connected. That's why our hymns talk about Jesus is born a king. And this is the illustration, I think, for this point, that the incarnation is, at its very core, the humility, the humbleness of God and of Christ. Is the doctrine of Christ as a righteous, powerful glorious king. And it's, in, in many ways, the battle that I think helps us fight back against the doctrine of stuff or the doctrine of therapeutic moral deism or all the different ideas that come at Christmas is that Christ is a humble king. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles or swipe in your Bibles or however you open the word of God. Um, I had a seminary professor, an older man from the South, who refused people in the pulpit, to, in, the, in the pews to use phones to look at their Bible, because he said it was like kissing your wife through a screen door. I have no such compulsion. If you want to turn with me to Deuteronomy 17, what we're going to find is God's commission of Christmas. 
And I don't think when we read Deuteronomy, we normally think of it as an Advent book. Deuteronomy 17, 14. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. He must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book the copy of this law approved by Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. He shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all of the words of this law and its statutes and by doing them, that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. This is a Christmas passage because we know the king that was promised Israel is not ultimately David, and it's not Solomon, it's not Josiah, it's not Hezekiah. This is a Christmas passage because the king that needs to come to Israel is the humble God taking on a humble human form, humbly and humanly saving his people so that he will be this king forever. And if we look at the descriptions here of this king, they are overwhelmingly humble descriptions. I would actually suggest to you that's maybe the only thread you can find to connect these disparate parts. He has to be one of you. He can't be some foreigner that's separate you. He has to be like you. What's the necessary part of humility? I think is that connection to one another, to not thinking yourself as above someone else. You have to be like them. Then he must says this, he must not have what? Many horses, many riches, many gold, many wives. He can't have anything that elevates himself above his people. And then the most humbling thing of all, he must be a man of the word. Or praise God, he must be the word in order to be truly humble. So humility is the king. Humility is the cause. It's the way. It's what's crowned. But then we see what happens when Christians at Christmas forget. That's the king that we need. And so now I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8, a passage that often gets confused, I think. This is when Israel demands a king. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. Now, how do we reconcile these two verses? Deuteronomy 17 says, when you get into the land and you want a king, that's good. But now in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when they want a king, God says they reject him. But the answer is in Philippians chapter 2. Because the question is, what kind of king do they want? They do not want a humble king. You can see in the beginning, what they want is a king like the other nations. Well, that pretty clearly violates the very first rule of the humble king, that he's going to be like you. He's not going to be like the nations. He's not going to robe himself in all these arrays. He's not going to call himself the emperor of the earth. He's not going to build a throne here that he thinks will stand. They're already breaking Deuteronomy. 
And then look who they pick. In verse 9, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, and he had a son whose name was Saul. And everything about Saul is not humble. They like him because he's not one, he is a Benjaminite, but he's not like them. We already said they want a king like the nations. He is handsome. <laughs> the opposite of the king that God describes in the book of Isaiah. He's known for his, his wealth, his, his prosperity, his handsomeness. Everything about him is the opposite of this humble king. And we'll see in his life that, that Saul is most definitely not a man of God's word. That he doesn't understand it, he doesn't care for it, he doesn't listen to it. And so they, Israel doesn't reject God because they want a king. Israel rejects God because they reject his humble king. The humble king described in Deuteronomy, the humble king that we find in the birth narratives of Luke and of Matthew, the humble king that Paul centers his letter around in Philippians 2. You have to fundamentally understand this Christmas king as humble. Now, before that, before he describes, he he makes this commendation to his people, right? And we know that Paul probably believes that as he's about to describe the humble life, that flows from the humble Christ, he thinks this is probably the last letter he's going to write to these people. He doesn't expect to live. Indeed, we don't know if he talked again to this church. He knows that he's leaving. He knows that they're going to need encouragement. They have supported Paul. They love Paul. They love the ministry. They love Jesus. But their beloved brother is about to die. He's deeply concerned that they might be left rudderless. Paul believes in the Holy Spirit. He believes in Christ. He believes in this humble king. But he's concerned about them. And so Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, hear the severity of his language. I, if there's anything I can give you to sustain you in this world, if there's anything I can give you to help you persevere when me and others and people in your flock are killed, if there is any comfort from love, that's pretty dramatic, any comfort from love, any participation in the Holy Spirit, just stop right there. If you're in Philippi or if you're here right now this morning, What Christian doesn't want these things? If we commissioned Ligonier or Barna to do a study of American Christians, what percentage of you would like to have encouragement from Jesus Christ? That answer would be 100%. Christians, how many of you would like to have comfort from love? 100%. Christians, how many of you would like to participate with the Holy Spirit? Lord, please let that be so. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So just as this king that God's people once rejected but now have accepted at Christmas, this king whose humble love is the cause of salvation, it's the way of salvation, it's what's glorified at salvation, now Christians have to realize that humility is every bit as central for their life because they find life in him. And that's essential. In, in Philippians 3, we see one of the most beautiful testaments to justification by faith alone. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish to gain Christ, to be found in him. Paul says this, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So here Paul clearly, he is not telling you to be humble so that Jesus might finally love you. He is not telling you to look not only to your interests, but those of others, so that this humble God might save you. It's instead the opposite. He says later, I press on towards this because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Because of the tremendous humility of this king, who is like you, 
And that's Christmas. That's him fulfilling the first part of Deuteronomy 17. Because he's like you, because he loves you more than he loved anything in this world, wives and riches in Egypt, because he is the word incarnate, you are already saved when you have faith in him. So this humility is not to win his love, but it is the only way, Paul says, to have encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Holy Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Paul says, I want that for you. Complete my joy then by doing this thing. Be humble. So we would see the exact same things that are true of Christ, and that's because how it works, we're united to him. What's true of Christ must then, through his work, his free grace, be true of his people. Humility has to be the cause for how we treat each other at Christmas and all through the year. Humility is the cause. If we want to have encouragement in Christ, comfort and love, participation in the Holy Spirit, humility is what will cause those things. And just like in our humble king, humility is what works in our life. Now, I'm very thankful for Covenant Presbyterian Church. We all greatly lament the amount of American churches that fall prey to the prosperity gospel. And if you want to hear the prosperity gospel at work, Christmas is the exact right season to sample it. Because every Christmas message in the world will be, Christmas is a season where God has come to give you all of your hopes and dreams, to drive away all the darkness, to get rid of your cancer, to give you money, to get rid of your debt, to de declare his promises. That's what Christmas is all about. Except we hear the exact opposite. Christmas is about humility. And so when I tell you that humility works, it's not because I desire for you to have your best life on Friday. Your, your best life better not be on Friday. Your best life better be in the world that's to come. But I will tell you, Paul says really clearly, if humility is how God saved the world, then humility is also the only thing that's going to work in your life to make you more like Jesus. If that's what he used to save the world, that's what he's going to use to change your heart. To do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but to count others as more significant than yourselves. That's the story of the gospel. The Bible says, why did God suffer the cross? And he said, for the joy that was set before him. What was the joy that was set before him? Glory with his Father, but also you. You were the joy that was set before him. You being with him and forever in paradise was his great joy that he loved so much that he cast aside everything else in humility because that's what he wanted. So now he says, if you would be like him, have that same mind. Jesus died for these people. That's what humble is. If you want to be like him, love them the way that he does, which is more than he loved his own life, with all due respect, more than you should love yours. Humility is also what God is going to crown in our life. It's also what is going to last. And we can see this in, in all of the promises of crowns that come through the Bible. You're probably familiar with some of them. Martyrs receive a crown in the book of Revelation. Elders, deacons receive a crown. It even says all those who rejoice in the Lord's appearing will receive a crown. But think of everything that God is crowning in the Bible and see that it is always the humility that is perfectly reflected in his son. The martyrs receive a crown because in humility they lost their life so that they might gain it in Jesus Christ. Those who serve the church receive a crown, Paul says, and Peter says, because they humbled themselves and gave their lives to the church. And all those who receive a crown for looking forward to Jesus Christ are those who forsake their life so that they might find it in Jesus Christ. So just like he will crown his son forever as a righteous, glorious, all-powerful king because of his humility, the only thing, the only thing that we should understand will work to have this benefit is humble love in our lives. You may ask, what about prayer? Can you pray if you don't do it in humility? James says no. 
What about serving one another? Serving one another is an act of humility. You say, what about coming in worship? Bending the knee to Jesus Christ is the act of humility that he requires of his people. So there are many Christian virtues. I'm not trying to elevate humility more above grace or more about love, but, but we have to understand that because it's central to who Christ is, it has to be central to us. And so we started by talking about Christmas stuff. The question is not whether or not the stuff is good or bad, because I can't answer that question for you. And I'm not telling you to take away your kids' Christmas presents because we need to be humble. That's probably the wrong way to teach your kids humility. No presents, be humble like Jesus. No. It's, it's, entirely, it's a entirely different question. Part of the problem with the Christmas stuff is that we live a life of many options. Right? You go on Amazon and you can have anything you want within days. I mean, literally almost anything. Things that would blow the mind of our grandparents if we showed them to them, right? All we have in this world of consumers is options. But if the central message of Christmas and incarnation is the humility of Christ, and if the central implication for his humility is our humility, then I tell you, you do not actually have options. <laughs> the only thing for us is to be humble like Jesus Christ. And the promise is, is there is no good thing that's lost in following Jesus Christ. No truly good thing does God remove from the people who love him. Yeah, he might remove some of the Christmas stuff. <laughs> we might lose some things in this world. But Jesus says, he who will lose this world for my sake will have life forever. That's humility. That's what Christ works in his people. That's the encouragement. Brothers and sisters, we are not humble enough. I am not humble enough. It's okay because Christ was humble enough for us. And so being filled with the overwhelming love that's so humble it saves us, we are only radically free to be completely humble, not just with our Christmas stuff, but with all of our life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your example of humility on the cross. The incarnation means so many things for us. It is a fountainhead of so many of our doctrines. We are thankful for every day of our life that you came and you took on our form, that you did what we could not do for ourselves, that you loved us even when we didn't love you, all for humble love's sake. God, we pray that this humble love would resonate in our hearts. We're so thankful. That in your providence, there's a season where we even go into stores and radios. We hear angels harking the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Lord, let that dwell particularly in your people. Guard us. Guard us from focusing too much on stuff and on the things of this world. But let us, like Jesus Christ, humble ourselves of everything except for love. And let us love him. Not to win his love, but to live in his love. And to bask in what humility does for your people. Let us pursue one another this season and all the days of our life with a truly humble love, because that's what saved us. And so, Lord, even as we pray these things, we pray for the people in this congregation. We desire for them to be healed. We desire for them to prosper. We desire for them to be strengthened, to be comforted, Lord. And so we ask first that you would enable the brothers and sisters here to be that comforting love, that we would indeed truly look to one another's needs as more important than our own, and that we would be desirous to pour out our lives to be a little bit more like Jesus tomorrow than we were today. We, fought, we pray for traveling mercies for all of our brothers and sisters who are far from us. Lord, keep them safe. Give them energy. Keep them uh, away from sickness. Lord, as we know that happens, deliver to them to where they're going or back home to us that we might rejoice in the gift that they are. Lord, we pray for all the members of this congregation that are sick. We think of Bill and Bernie. We think of Pastor Chelpka. We think of the Nichols family. Lord, bless them. If it's in your will, 
You are a God of tremendous mercy and grace. We ask that you would heal them. Give them healing. And Lord, even if you desire for this thorn to continue, Lord, we pray that you would use it to bring them closer to Jesus, that there would be comfort in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit that there would be participation and love and sympathy, that they would know they have these things in you. And Lord, allow your church to be that comfort, to be that encouragement to them as they suffer. Lord, we pray for our sister Sarah, who goes into open-heart surgery tomorrow. We pray that you would bless her. We pray that you would equip the saints of Calvin Presbyterian Church to care for her. We pray for Caleb, her husband. We pray for Josephine, and their daughter. Comfort them. Lord, we pray that they would have these things that you've promised your people, that they would be encouraged in Jesus Christ, that they would be comforted by your love, that they'd have a participation in the Holy Spirit because of your amazing, humble love for them. Lord, we do ask for healing for Sarah. Strengthen her heart. Care for her doctors. Give them wisdom and strength and energy tomorrow as they work. Lord, we ask for mercy, knowing we are undeserving of it, but knowing you love to give it because of your wonderful, wonderful, wonderful grace. Lord, we ask for all these things in the name of our great Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen.